Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Judges. You can start in uh, Judges chapter 3, and we're going to go back to 2, and then we're going to eventually go to chapter 21. As we finish off our summer series of Judges, we've been looking at Judges kind of as a big kind of biblical theology, looking at the storyline of the Bible, how it fits in. Today's title is There Was No King. Mayhem, violence, revenge, idolatry, mass genocide, kidnapping. These are the words that are ripped from our headlines in our news every day. It boggles the mind the awful atrocities that humans can perform against another, isn't it? It just boggles the mind. The news coming from Ukraine is tragic, along with news that leaks out from countries that rule through intimidation, manipulation, and just an old, cruel, iron-handed fist. But it's not just nations that are guilty uh, of this type of uh, behavior, this type of depravity. Just this week, the headlines were filled with several stories of mothers who strangled or smothered their children. Gangs of young people attacking the elderly. Subways filled with all sorts of raunchy activities. And our schools and libraries promoting sexual immorality. It is just the depravity and the depths that we have gone to is just amazing. We live in a Roman one, Roman one world where we have suppressed the truth about God. Where we have not honored God or given thanks to him where we've exchanged the glory of God for worthless idols while exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Worship Satan. We've refused to acknowledge God. And in doing so, we have reaped the consequences of our depravity. Yet all of this is not new to our generation or even the past few generations. This has been the case since Adam and Eve rebelled against our creator and chose to be their own gods. That decision has plunged the whole of creation under the curse of sin and death. And as we close out the last chapters of Judges, we're going to read of some very turbulent, violent times in which humanity has no regard for God or for others. Chapters 17 through 21, which we were to read this week, dictate two main events that point to the full depravity that the 12 tribes of Israel have fallen to several generations after entering the promised land. What started out as a stirring success turned into a tragic tale of the consequences of sin. To start, let's go back to the beginning of the book as the writer gives us a summary of how it all began in Judges chapter 3 verse 7. It is here on the monitor, but again, I encourage you to bring your Bible so you can highlight, make notes, and underline. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Father, we just come before you this morning, and we just ask for your strength. We ask for your guidance as we open up the words of Scripture We know that it is both a privilege but also responsibility to handle it correctly, but also, Lord, to learn from you. And so, Father, I pray that you touch our hearts. And some, we may need a reprove, a correction, maybe a rebuke. For others, we just may need a word of encouragement, a word of challenge. But in which way, Lord, as this message comes forth, I know it will hit all different, everyone differently. So may the Holy Spirit have free reign to do what he's come here to do this morning. And we thank you for that opportunity in your name. Amen. This verse captures completely what we have been discussing of the last two weeks regarding the importance of guarding our heart for it is the wellspring of life. We understand it, right? If the wellspring is poison, that then goes downstream and affects all of the tributaries of that water source. I've told you before, I got the, had the opportunity to go to uh, Minnesota years ago, and I got to go to the, the, the wellspring, the head, the head of the Mississippi River. And you, most of you have seen it, so you've seen it on the map, if you've never driven over, I mean, it's humongous. And in some areas, it is just so wide. 
But you go to the wellspring, the headspring there of the Mississippi, I was able to step over it. So it's the beginning of a, of a creek there in a, in a state, a creek, a creek uh, of, a, of, a, of a state park there. You're able to walk over it, but by the end, as it reaches the Gulf, you see how mighty, we call it the mighty, muddy Mississippi. In the same way, if we do not guard our hearts, everything that comes from us, our speech, our thoughts, everything that we do, then is also going to be poisoned if we do not guard it well. You recall that we define the heart as consisting of, of, of our thoughts, the things that we think. It consists of our emotions or our affections, the things that we desire, the things that we want out of life, and then also our will. It's the choices. It's the choices that we make. And in this verse, you can see where Israel went wrong. So if you have that, can you go back to that for me, uh, Ben? Because I want to make another comment. So if you look at this verse, you'll see their thoughts. They forgot the Lord. They forgot the Lord. They no longer thought of him or his covenant or his commands or his words. They didn't think of his promises. They didn't think of how God had delivered them, their parents from, from Egypt. And how he had given them their land. We also see their emotions as it says what they did or did they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like, like Samson, he said, she is right in my eyes. We talk about that. They, 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 they desire something. And so they did that which they were desired, even though they were warned, commanded, do not accept or adopt the practices of the pagans. But then we see their will, their choices. They choose to forget God abandon him, but serve the Baals and the Asherah. You see, their heart was poisoned. They didn't guard it. They weren't vigilant. They weren't diligent about their heart, just as Samson and the others were not that we've seen through this series. And from it, their lives had poisoned. Many of you have heard of Baal. We think of Baal as uh, he's, he's actually the god of dung. The Lord of the Flies. You've heard of that phrase, Lord of the Flies. Uh, that's, that's Baal. That's what type of God he was. But Ashroth, this is interesting, is Ashroth right now is one of the major gods that we, especially here in America, serve today. Ashroth was the fertility god. It was the god of sexuality, of sensuality. That is typically our God today in America, where sexual liberation, sexual freedom, even for your children, is the, what they're desiring and what they're wanting to pull from you. These failures to guard their heart led to the consequences that you and I have been reading about and that would eventually lead them to cry out to Yahweh for deliverance. So they would do these things, but then they would cry out for God for deliverance. Going back in Judges chapter 2, verse 18, we see that it didn't help, though, because they would eventually go back. If you're in Judges, look at chapter 2, verse 18. For it says, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them after they cried out, after they asked for deliverance, after they did not enjoy the consequences of their sin, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of, that, of the judge, whether it was Samson, Gideon, so on and so forth. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and impressed them. But look at verse 19. But whenever the judge died... What did they do? They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. One step back, two steps forward. Or you may want to reverse that in either way. Is they were like the dog that returned to their vomit, but also wanted the vomit of another dog, to put it in very vulgar New Testament terms. Serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of the practices or their stubborn ways. We've been talking that we could take that picture and we could put it today for you and I, for we many times are like this ourselves. This cycle continued for generations. And as I mentioned in our introduction today, uh, today's passage contains two stories that would shock even today's postmodern sensibilities. They would be an NC-17 or worse because these stories are just unbelievable. The first story is that of Micah. This one's a little bit tame. In chapter 7, if you want to turn, or 17, if you want to turn to 17, we're going to look at it very quickly. We're not going to read any of it, but we are just going to, so you can kind of see the story. Micah was a selfish young man who stole 1,100 
pieces of silver. Now, I, I didn't do the math of what that would be today, but I think it would be quite a bit of money. He, he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Now, to his credit, he did confess eventually to taking it, but shockingly, his indulgent mother blessed him and gave him 200 pieces of silver as a reward for then confessing it and giving it back. He then takes that 200 pieces of silver, he takes it to a silversmith who makes an idol, a god for it. He buys an ephod, which a priest would wear, and he takes it to his house, and he sets his son as the priest of this new cult that he is starting. Now, as you continue to read, he eventually finds a young Levite man, and he comes to him. Now, this Levite was a Levite, but he was not a priest of a Levite. He was just from the tribe of Levite. He was one who would serve in the tabernacle, but not necessarily as a priest. He finally goes to him and says, well, listen, are you, you're a Levite. Would you like to come to my house and be my priest? And the guy thought, well, yeah, that, that'd, be pretty, that'd be cool. I'm not doing anything now. So he goes and he starts a cult and he begins a priest and he begins this cult. But eventually a group of men from the tribe of Dan, Samson was from the tribe of Dan, the one who we studied over the last two weeks. They're traveling the countryside looking for a new place to make their home because they were not able to drive out the Philistines. So they're looking for a new land and they come alongside and they see Micah's home. Micah's not there, but the young Levite is. He, he talks to them and they ask him some questions, and they realize, you know what? We could use a priest. How would you like to become a priest of a nation instead of a young family? The guy goes, yeah, I'd love to do that. So he steals the idol and all the things of Micah, goes off. Then there's a little bit of, a, bit of, a, 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 of arguing and things of that nature as Dan and Micah then face off. But in the end, we see one betrayal after another. Now, the problem with all this is that the trial of 12 tribes were commanded in Exodus 20. You'll see it here, I believe, on the, on the board, on the monitor. We're back then in the, new, in the Ten Commandments. It says, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, Micah is not the only one. The only reason this story is given to us because this was the heart attitude of those who were living in those days. They had no qualms about neglecting and rejecting the covenant of Yahweh. They had no problem shedding the requirements of the commandments and abandoning the worship of God. So Micah stands not in stark contrast, but he is the culture. He is what people are doing. Instead of going to Shiloh where the tabernacle was, they were creating and inventing their own houses of worship, their own way of worship, like many of us do today. The second story is that of another Levite in chapter 19. We are not given his name, only that he was not serving as he should have been, but is traveling around the countryside with his concubine. Now, a concubine was a woman who did not have the rights of a legal marriage. She would be his right, but she had, uh, she would be his wife, but she would have a lower status than a wife in those days. She could not easily, she could be easily set aside for another woman, and she did not have any rights to any inheritance, nor did her children. For some reason, she leaves him. She's unfaithful, the scripture says, and she goes back to her father. The Levite follows her, and after some haggling with her father for almost five days, he finally takes her and heads back to where he lives, back to their home. However, as they're traveling, it becomes dark, and they stop at a city called Gibeon. And it has much in common with Sodom, as the men of the city, when they realize that they're there, goes to the house where they're sitting, knocks on the door, and demand for them to allow the Levite, or to demand for them to, to force the Levite to come outside so that they may have sex with them. That may be known. You might remember this with Lot, the nephew of Abraham, when the angels came to warn him about the Lord going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. This story then takes a turn that would even make the most shameless of us squirm. As the Levite, in order to save his own skin, throws out his concubine out the door 
to try and appease the men. We won't speak more of that. You could read through it. I pray that you do. But obviously the men abuse her and use her. The next morning, the man opens the door and to leave, and he finds his concubine lying in a heap, barely surviving the ordeal. And this man, who is uncaring and unloving, pretty much steps over her, and he orders her in chapter 19, verse 28, if you want to follow the story with me. He says, get up, let us be going. Doesn't even reach down to help her. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took his concubine. He took a knife, and he, taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. In other words, he cut her up into 12 different pieces. And then he sent her piece by piece throughout the territory of Israel to the 12 tribes. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. What an awful, awful scenario. What a hardness of heart, not just from the men in the city, but we're talking about the men, the Levites. The last two chapters detail the consequences of that sin. As the 12 tribes respond to this barbarity by attacking the tribe of Benjamin, where the city of Gibeon is, for harboring the culprits responsible. In other words, the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin, they, they supported this group of men, this wicked men. They would not turn them over. This revenge killing leaves the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, as we see, the other tribes then slaughter all the women and children of the Benjamites. The whole tribe, all their women and children. And it leaves the tribe of Benjamin without the possibility of continuing as a tribe as they now have no women to bear them children, to make their wives and to have children. The other tribes come up with a solution by allowing then the Benjamites to kidnap their daughters for wives during the yearly feast at Shiloh without any interference to repopulate. Allow their daughters to be kidnapped by the Benjamites so that they then can have children. As you and I close the pages of Judges, turn to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. As we close the pages of Judges, we can sum up the entirety of this madness with the words found in Judges 21-25, where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, you and I have focused on that last sentence during this series. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And, and that's the world that we're living in, right, today. Everyone still seems to do what is right in their own eyes. They, they, they say what is good is evil, and what is evil is good. We live in a day in which we are defining, redefining words all the time. Recession doesn't mean recession. Woman doesn't mean woman. Men doesn't mean men. Even this week, I was telling the adult core class, I don't know if you noticed it, but Wikipedia actually redefined the word definition. They redefined it so they now can define words by a different way. It's just there's a madness about because we all do what is right in our own eyes. This has been their mantra, mantra as we see today. We see, we want, we take. Remember we looked at that at Samson? He saw the woman, he desired her, and he took her. And then we pointed back, that was the problem with Eve and Adam and Eve, right? They saw, they, they desired, they took. That's the cycle that the world is in, the world that you and I live in. There is no self-control. There is no consideration for the commands of God. There is no heed for the day of judgment. We pointed out in our very first message of the series that the 12 tribes fell into the cycle of sin due to three things. You remember this? The lack of, of, of godly morals. There was just godly confusion, as we just see in this last story. 
a lack of godly faithfulness, as we saw in the story of Micah, and then just really simply a lack of godly leadership. Where were the priests? Where was the, the prophets? Where, only as long as there were judges who kept uh, that area in control, you know, under his hand, there was peace. There was some semblance of faithfulness. But this can be said of us today as well. This lack of these things is found in our governments, our schools, our companies, our families, in, in, in all areas and facets of life. Our culture today is as bad, if not worse, than the days of the judges and the days of Noah, when God saw that the whole intent of man's heart is to continually do evil. But I want to focus this morning on the first sentence. And if you can keep that up, thank you. I want to focus on the first sentence of the verse. The one that allowed them to descend into this depravity and rebellion. If you haven't underlined this verse, you need to do it, highlight it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That first line is more important than the second line. There was no king in those days. Four times it is recorded in Judges. That in those days, you'll see this, in those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right. In those days there was no king. In those days there was no king. In those, those days there was no king. The sound of a Bible dictionary informs us that in those days there was no real Hebrew nation. As you and I think of Israel during the time of King David or King Solomon. They were just 12 regional tribes at best. They were a loose uh, confederation of tribes around a central sanctuary at Shiloh, which they, many of them, neglected in the first place. There was no central authority. There was no leader to guide and direct them in the covenant. After the death of Moses and then Joshua, they were left without a strong leader. They were to look to Yahweh to lead them through the ministries of the peace of the priests, but they soon uh, abandoned that practice. The priests and the Levites were just as corrupt as the people. And it's no coincidence that as long as there was a judge, one to lead them, they, they followed the Lord, only though to see them fall back into sin once that judge was dead. Now there are some general characteristics of a king when we think of a king. One, a king has final authority. Uh, they have a, the position for life. Their word is law. They, they didn't have a, a parliament or other uh, uh, bodies of government to overthrow them or to speak against it. They also controlled the government and the military. And like the 12 tribes and judges, we too, we live in a broken world. We, we see it all around us. We know this innately. There is no escaping the fact, <coughs> excuse me, that injustice and racism and prejudice, class warfare and violence, etc., are all rampant. There is no shortage of political, cultural, and religious messiahs who proclaim that they alone have the answers and demand that we bow down and follow them. We do this every two and four years. We're looking for someone else who can come and fix this broken world. But in their wake, in these false messiahs, they litter the landscape with broken promises, bitterness, resentment, frustration, anger, and maybe even despondency. What can we do? Just throw up their hands. Eventually, this leads the populace to feelings of hopelessness, looking for another savior to lead them to their self-designed promised lands. Israel had all it needed to obey and please God. However, Judges demonstrates that even with the word of God and a special covenant, people are prone to chase after their own satisfaction, to do what is right in their own eyes. We are quick to shed God when it suits our needs, only then to cry out to him when we face the consequences. 
Theologians Fee and Stuart writes here, I believe it's on the monitor, that this tragic pattern in Judges points to the next phase of God's great story of, ju- of redemption. You may say, well, where does the book of Judges lead? You know, I, I shared earlier that if you end with the story of the Levite and what happened to the tribe of Benjamin and you, you close that, you would just, what in the world does this book have to do with anything? What, what are we to do with this book? Well, well, it helps us. It's the next phase or leads us to the next phase of the story of redemption, which is going to be, begin to move forward considerably, they write, through the stories of Ruth and her great-grandson, David, who you and I know as the second king of Israel. Like God's people, get this, like God's people century ago, centuries ago, we are also in need of a king to meditate God's kingdom, to right that which went so horribly wrong. We need a king who will judge, rule, and defend God's chosen people in righteousness and proclaim peace to all the nations. Today we're going to focus on that promise of a king, a king who will come and make all things right and new. It's Jesus Christ who came to put all of his enemies under his feet, who came to shepherd God's people. And we would join with all the angels and all the saints before us singing that glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'd like for you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In those days there was no king, but what we're going to see is God's going to make right that which went wrong. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, in this passage, we read that the Lord promises to send and appoint a king who will bring and rule in justice, peace, and righteousness. As you may recall, the first king of Israel was Saul. The people finally demanded a king. God allowed them to choose that king, and he wound up being a disaster. And in this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to look at verse 11. The Lord sends the prophet Nathan to King David, the second king of Israel, and he promises this to King David. He says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." Now, you may notice that he doesn't say your offsprings. There's no plural there. He's speaking of one son of David who will be this king. The attributes of this promised king is that his house, his kingdom, his throne, and his relationship with God will be forever. Now, you and I know that that Solomon did not fulfill that. After Solomon's death, the kingdom was divided, never again to be put together. Now you might want to turn to Romans chapter 13. For one might ask, but why is it that we need a king? Why is it that there needs to be a ruler? Why is there someone who needs to be over us? Why can't we just live our lives as we see fit? Especially here in the U.S. of A. We haven't had the greatest experiences of kings with kings in our history. Today, nations that still have kings and queens have relegated them mainly to ceremonious duties. They are, for the most part, just symbols of the past. Typically, when we think of kings, we conjure up thoughts of tyrants, despots, and dictators, and so on and so forth. However, kings or rulers, leaders, have played a large role in serving as mediators for God. They stand in the place of God for us and they do God's will. Scripture commands and informs us in verse 1 of Romans chapter 13 let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from whom? God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. See, everyone that is ever in leadership 
whether it's a president, a dictator, whatever, they are placed and instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now here he's giving why he's giving them. Now, as you read this, you say, well, this isn't happening, and that's the problem. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, you and I, as we look throughout history, we know that not many of our rulers whether in our nation or other nations, have lived up to this command, to this purpose. Again, we have flawed, sinful men. Not only those that lead, but also those who follow and those who serve. We know that earthly human kings have failed to rule righteously and honestly in God's stead. Our rulers themselves are guilty of rejecting God and perverting justice. We need an honest judge. We need a righteous ruler. We need a trustworthy defender to mediate God's kingdom. We need a ruler because we are disobedient children, rebellious at heart, considered children of wrath and children of Satan, following the prince and power of this world from the day that we are conceived and born. This condition is demonstrated through the Old Testament narrative of God's dealing with man and Israel in Genesis, Exodus, and yes, even as we see in Exodus where every man did what is right in his own eyes. We today are like that. We are living in a world filled with wickedness, bribery, and injustice. Evil seems to rule the day, does it not? Terrorists, starvation, political intrigue, prejudice, a basic lack of compassion for each other. We too need a righteous the wonderful news is that God fulfilled this promise in Luke chapter 1, verses 30. It's here on the monitor. We usually read this once or twice a year during the Christmas season. But we have a last day of July. We'll have a little bit of Christmas in July. Where the angel says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob, what? Forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The promise in Samuel is given today with the birth of Christ, or given then with the birth of Christ. So you, too, you and I today, we do have a king. One who will lead us and direct us and guide us who will be our shepherd, who will mediate between God the Father and us. One who will help us not to do what's right in our own eyes, but help us to give our hearts into the right way of conforming to that king. Someone will ask, well, how does Christ perform the office of a king? How is, he is a king, he, he's in heaven, right, or he resides in my heart. I mean, how is he a king today? Well, I would say he is a king today. He is king over all things. And even today, he's the king of us. That's why our, our, our theme this morning was, who is that king of glory? He is the king of glory. Our scripture reading earlier was of when he will return as the physical, earthly king. But he still is king today. The Westminster Confession captures the word of God correctly. When it states that Christ performs the office of a king in three ways. Number one, you'll see it here on the screen, in subduing us to himself. That's the first thing that a king needs to do, is he needs to subdue the territory that is under his hand. Now the reason that Jesus must subdue us is found in the words of the Old Testament prophet, who proclaimed when that Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. We need a king who, who delivers us, but then he subdues us. The prophet Isaiah goes on to state that we are captives of sin, imprisoned by our own wicked possessions or passions and desires. This confession informs us that Christ, through the power of the Spirit, conquers our natural aversion to God. See, mark that, please. In our birth, we are born with a natural aversion to the things of God. The Bible tells us that our minds are hostile to the things of God. He conquers our rebellion against him and and our hatred towards God. And he makes us willing to embrace Jesus as our Savior and King. So he changes our hearts. When we think of being born again, he changed my heart. In other words, we think of Jesus differently. We, we desire, we, we feel for him differently. And our choices, our will is different for we willingly submit to his will. The confession remarks that a king is the chief authority over a people and a country. And in earlier times, he was no mere figurehead as we think of princes and kings today. But you and I needed a king because we are bondage to sin. To truly receive Christ, we take him not only as our teacher and our savior, but as our king as well. Something many times that's missing from our presentation of the gospel. Oh, just accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? We use those phrases. You, you know, you get, and you don't, you don't, you get your sins forgiven and you don't go to hell. But we forget about the Lord for your times where he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We accept his word and we keep his commandments out of gratitude and love. We don't serve this king unwillingly. Jesus has given all authority in heaven on earth or has been given all authority. He is able to win us to himself, care for us in our weakness, and bring us at last by his grace into our eternal home. How? By the song we sung earlier. He pursues us with his love. There's an old hymn that says he's wooing us to heaven, using that old phrase of wooing, of of a courtship. Now Christ is not like earthly kings where he subdues us physically. No, he subdues us one heart at a time as his spirit renews our mind, then our affections, and then in gratitude and submission, we pick up our cross and willingly, joyfully follow him. I pray today that God the Father has subdued you to Christ's will. I pray the Holy Spirit has shown you the beauty of Christ and you are not fighting Christ That you're not holding your fist in rebellion, but you are willingly submitting to his word and to his rule. Secondly, Jesus performs the office of the king by ruling and defending us. Once we submit to him, he rules and defends. The prophet Isaiah proclaimed that the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. He rules over us, but the Lord is the king, but he also will what? Save us. Jesus demonstrates his kingly power by defending us against all of our enemies. The sin that seeks to continue to control over us. Satan, who accuses and seeks to paralyze our ministries with doubt about God's word, about doubt about God's character and his love for us. But also he defends us against the world who seeks to entrap us into loving it and seeking satisfaction in its false promises. Lastly, he saves and defends us from death, which is the eternal separation from the blessings and the mercies and the grace of God. So we do not have a king who desires just to rule over us as some authoritative figure, but one who wants to rule and help us in our lives and guide us and defend us from these things that attack us. The psalmist sings that our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the, uh, uh, our king to the Holy One of Israel. Jesus, the king, also defends us against the corruption that still resides in his children, you and I, by preserving us in his grace and praying for us. I think of Romans chapter 7 where Paul is writing about, as a Christian, he's struggling with sin. The things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, 
I do. All of us understand that, right? That's the battle that you and I live in each and every day. He goes, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, my flesh, another law that's warring against the law of my mind. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I don't know if you've cried that out. I know I have. If you haven't, then I would pray that you would get a greater sensitivity to the sin that still resides in our own hearts. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He cries out. He answers it in the next sentence. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Number three, Christ performs the office of a king by restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. For he must reign, the scripture says, until he's put all enemies under his feet. That last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, the Western, uh, Westminster Confession rightly sums up the scripture when it says that Christ overrules and disappoints our enemies' wicked purposes. He sets limits to their wrath and to bring a revenue of glory to himself out of the same. In other words, when, when someone says that God never wastes a hurt or that anything that happens in your life, it says that it happens for a good purpose. We see that in Rome. In, in, or in Romans. And we know that those who love God, all things work to good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, Satan may have a season of attacking you. You may be undergoing suffering in some type of way. And I'll tell you, I really believe we're going to be going through some suffering over these next few years. And we need to realize that not only has God set a limit to it, not only is he uh, uh, disappoints the Satan and also overrule him, but he also gives us grace to endure it. There is an end to it. John the Apostle writes that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In his revelation, he proclaims they that Christians have conquered Satan and the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The confession sums up the kingship of Jesus with this question. What may we learn from Christ as he executes the office of a king? The answer is that though believers, while in this world, are in the midst of the enemy. So in other words, we know the king is ruling, but we know that there's enemies living among us. We may be married to them. They may be our children. They may be our bosses, employees, our neighbors. It may even be you yourself at times. Were as lambs like wolves, yet this mighty king goes up before them, shall be more than conquerors. We have a king who is desirous of restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. Now our response to this is to surrender to Christ, to allow Christ to reign in our hearts. To let nothing else on that throne. Not to be as the 12 tribes and abandon God's word. To neglect the gathering of his people and the rejection of his commands. Our response to the king of kings is to obey him and his word. When you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven, we are asking for Christ to rule and reign in each and every situation of our lives. Colossians 3.15, we read, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when the people complained, well, then give us a king. We saw that the kings themselves, though, also then did what was right in their own eyes. They could not do what God requires. And we've seen this throughout history, repeating year after year, decade, decade, centuries, and so forth. So God promised to send a righteous, just king who will rule forever, bringing in peace. That king is Jesus. Christ's offices render him glorious in the believer's eye and dear to the believer's heart. He is in the office of king for us to rule and to guide, to lead 
He's there for our salvation, for our peace and satisfaction is to seek him. As the apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invincible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Is that your prayer? Is that your song, your doxology? As I humbly and willingly submit to the king in all areas, in all things of my life. That's what he's calling for you today. James Smith, in his book, The Glories of Christ, I believe it should be here on the monitor, says that he, Jesus, is a king who receives the returning rebel and grants a pardon. He rules over his people by his love and his laws, and he defends all who trust him from danger and death. He rules over mankind and in the believer, and he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and as the king, he saves from dangers and foes. You may want to take a picture of that. Keep that somewhere on your screen protector. Or maybe you can get a tattoo. That's a long tattoo, that one, though. That would wrap around a lot of that. I think it's a great quote. You see, Jesus succeeds where the judges fell. He overcomes that which overcomes earthly kings and rulers. We need to recognize that. So when we look at the book of Judges, it helps us understand that without a king, without a righteous, just king, everyone will do right what's right in their own eyes, for there's no one to help them to subdue them, to guard them, to protect them. But you and I also need to recognize that in this world, we still have flawed men and sinful men who guide and lead us. We've seen that for the last few presidential elections, and that's all I'm going to say. For generations. So you and I say, well, what do we do with men like Samson and Gideon and Jephthah? And Barak. These are all men that are listed in Hebrews as men of faith, but yet as we read their lives, they're anything but men of faith. They, they, they themselves were doing what was right in their own eyes. How do we think of our leaders? And we started this in our first uh, lesson is, uh, in this series is that many of us are struggling, or many people are struggling with Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. They were slave owners. So we need to cancel them. We, we can't do their work. There's some who want to cancel King David now because he was a rapist. Never He was also a murderer. They want to take the words of Paul and throw them out because they're misogynists. They're sexists. And so what do we do when, we are, when, when God does work and mediate his kingdom through flawed sinful men, even standing here? pastors and elders, deacons. You're going to have flawed, sinful men. Pastor Johnny, I'm not going to be able to say his name, so I'm going to say Pastor Johnny. Over at Grace Community, he's, he works with the youth out there. He writes that he's so thankful that Scripture always reduces the heroes of the faith to mere mortals by transparently including their sin. Abraham lied. Jonah ran. David killed. Elijah doubted. Noah got drunk. Moses disobeyed. Peter denied Jesus. You see, the thing that you and I have to realize as we are waiting for that Revelation 19 to happen, when the king comes... God still gives us flawed, sinful men and women to lead and guide us. He calls us to obey them to the word of God. But yet we need to recognize that even our pastors, our preachers, our God, the men that we, we look up to are flawed, sinful men as well. You see, here's the thing that we need to understand that when we look at judges, not only do we need a king as they needed a king, but we need to recognize that there are no perfect men. Quit looking to humanity for a savior. For God has provided a perfect savior, a perfect king. The only one worth following. So let me ask you as we get ready to close, would you today embrace the rule of King Jesus in all of your life? 
He doesn't allow you to say, well, I'll follow you this much. Or I'll follow you up to this point. No, all is given to the king. Would you repent of dead works and turn and put your trust that God has accepted the obedience and sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf? For we all did what was right in our own eyes. And we are not left to do that. But we are in judgment and will suffer the consequences, which is sin and death. So I'd pray today, if you do not know Jesus Christ as King, as Savior, that means repenting of your sins, seeing yourself as a sinner, one in need of a Savior. And he is the only one through his obedience that provides what God required. And then submit to his kingship in all things. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 through 7, you see this verse here. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. One day every knee shall bow and confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. Let us do so this morning. Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed as worship team comes up, Randy, for our pastor's prayer. Again, I want you to just take a moment to pause in those words. In those days, there was no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Consider the fact that we need a king. One to rule over us. One to restrain and conquer our enemies. And one to subdue us to himself. And he has provided the perfect king for us. Have you submitted to that? Have you come to accept that willingly, desiring his rule? And then would you just pray and ask how the Spirit would have you respond this morning? that you may glorify God and for your own good. Randy, would you come close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.